0: Fellowship Church, I am thankful to see each and every one of you here. Um, some of you haven't seen for a while, some of you maybe it's your first time, welcome. Uh, some of you may be joining online, welcome. Uh, it's at this point that we're going to turn to God's Word. It's, uh, maybe you were struck by it earlier when Aaron read that passage for a confession that they spent a quarter of the day just reading the Bible and then the next quarter of the day responding to it. We're not going to quite take that long. But we do want to, uh, even if we're not literally standing to attention, we want our hearts to be present and our minds to be present for what we're going to see in God's Word uh, this morning. So uh, join me and let's ask the Lord to do that for us. Father, in the next few minutes, Lord, before we break and leave for lunch and to finish our weekend and start our week, whatever lies ahead of us, uh, God, we want to take a moment to pay attention to your words, uh, your Holy Scripture. We pray that it would change us. It would fashion our hearts and our minds and make us different, Lord, that our time this morning wasn't just to check a religious box, um, another to-do, in our long last of, uh, list of things that we um, make our, our commitments, Lord, but we want it to be impactful. We want to be shaped and conformed to the image of Christ through your words, Father. Uh, I pray that I would decrease now and that you you would increase through the exaltation of your name and your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the things that we share uh, across cultures, across time, is singing. Singing doesn't go out of style. Uh, There's really not many places you can go in the world where singing isn't done. It may be done differently. There may be more or less instruments, faster, slower, uh, whether you're speaking of church or or other cultural venues. Uh, We tend to listen. We're music listeners, uh, and we may have different tastes in terms of style, but there's this transcultural, trans-historical Elements that sort of created in us, and you don't have to be a Christian to kind of understand that and partake in that. And we sing for various things. Sometimes it's a joyous occasion, and it's hardly ever a birthday party where you pull out the cake and just nobody sings. There's there's some singing to it, uh, and then some applause and blowing out the candles. It's tradition. It's a way we celebrate. We love you. We love that you were born. We love that you're our friend, our family. Here's this cake, uh, and we want to uh, do something to officially recognize that we're celebrating you, and we sing a song that pretty much everybody knows. Uh, it, it strikes me when uh, we go to sports arenas and stadiums. I was just that I hate to say, guaranteed rate field, but I don't know, we got, you know should we just say comiskey uh with the downward arrow it's just terrible anyway um we're sitting up in this sky box because we got tickets and whatever i don't know uh they were serving food and we're behind glass we're not really in the stadium but we're looking through the glass you can look down in the field and uh, the band came out to play the anthem And as soon as the anthem started everybody dropped their Slimy chicken wings and with sticky fingers, removing their hats. People are dropping their, you know, uh, hot dogs and everybody just stood up. But regardless of religion, age, all the dudes took off their hats, held it over their heart. I'm looking around the room, and it doesn't matter what side of the aisle they were on politically. We're at a baseball game, and you start looking for the flag, you look at the flag, you stand, and you honor it. It had nothing to do with 9 11, it's anthem. So sometimes it's a joyous occasion where it's happy, celebrative, and sometimes it's a little more solemn, thinking about the sacrifice that allowed you to eat food at a baseball game. But we sing because singing is a way to express things that are deeply meaningful for us. And uh, oftentimes we miss how foundational that is to Christianity. Uh, We come in here and we, we sing, and if you're not used to Christian culture you're kind of like they kind of sing a lot I mean at the birthday party it's the one song and done and we kind of fast-forward through it sometimes and the anthem it's nice but we sing like four or five you know anthems yes we do yes we do but singing is a commitment and you may not sing really well you may be sheepish that somebody next to you might hear you um, that's okay <laughs> but it's not about singing the quality it's singing the commitment and I want to show you that from Psalm 108 Psalm 108, just last week we were in Psalm 107. We're not going to move through all the psalms. We're going to start a new series next week. But I selected these as the opening psalms to Psalm book number five. And I wish I had a super spiritual reason for selecting these psalms. I just, I don't know, I, I, I came upon it and I thought these one, two, this one, two punch opening for book five is just helpful for us to uh, provide a foundation for us in our lives Very simple opening, the superscription there, a song, a psalm of David. No background, no historical background. Here's a song that was written by David. And here's how it opens. Let's read the first four verses. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Well, The first thing you will observe is that the psalmist's singing arises not because it's a certain time in the week and they're in a certain place where singing happens, but something is transpiring in his heart, right? My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. So it's not, oh, it's time to sing, let's stand, although we do that, and that's, that's important. That is a theme in the Old Testament as well, of course, singing in the assembly, singing with the congregation, but this is deeply interior to the person. I sing because my heart is in a certain place. And you'll notice that the heart isn't there because it was such a beautiful day that morning. His heart is firmly there. Now, here's something I want to pause and grapple with, because oftentimes you'll read the Psalms and you're like, man, it talks a lot about joy and singing and making melody and being happy and, and, and all that kind of stuff. I think our moods can go up and down, and that's not necessarily sinful. You have a good day, you have a bad day, it would just you would just be a robot if you didn't feel the weight of a bad day or you didn't feel the highs of a good day. That's okay. I don't think the psalmist is talking about that. I think the, the psalmist is talking about something that underlies all those things, such that you're not feeling that great to that day, but underneath that is a core that is always feeling great. Right? On the surface, yeah, you're kind of down today, but overall. You're trusting in God. I think he's talking about this core foundational piece that doesn't change. That's what he means. My heart is steadfast. There's a word we don't use very often. It's firm. It stays there in the same place. It doesn't move up and down. And oftentimes, we only have the up and down mood. We don't have the central constant core underneath that. Therefore, when we're up, we feel like singing. When we're down, We don't feel like singing. When we're up, we read our Bibles. When we're down, Bible collects dust. When we're up, we'll gather with the saints. When we're down, saints are disappointing. People are stinky. I hate people. I'm going to just stay home today. We're all going to feel like that. The difference between the person that sticks it out and the person that doesn't is one of them only has the surface level up and down. Whatever happens to me is how I'm going to feel versus someone else that regardless of what happens to me, my heart stays firm you think of an anchor think of something that stays put regardless of wind and rain and storm so that's how he starts out this psalm my heart is steadfast god and because my heart is steadfast i'm going to sing not because it's a certain time of the week not because i'm feeling particularly chipper today i will sing and make melody with all my being And if we're going to join in this, we don't want to push too far and go, well, he means metaphorically make melody. No. (laughs) He gets specific. Awake the instruments. Right? Like, well, I don't play. All right, get around people that play. That's why it is important to put this also into the context of meeting with other people. The harp, the lyre, the guitar, the violin, whatever we have. Wake those instruments up. Get them out of their cases and play them. Why? Because we sing and make melody with all my being. You you think he's basically saying, not barely dialing it in, but with gusto, right? With zeal, bringing some zeal to the singing and the music playing and the instruments. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. When are you so excited about something? You can't even wait for the sun to come up. You're you're up before the sun comes up. You're ready to tackle the day you're so excited about this day. Some of us think immediately about Christmas and the kids jumping on your bed like presents, right? They're just so excited. Can't get the kids up any other day, but that day they're ready for presents and they're waking you up and you're like, it's not even dawn. Yes, I can barely see the sun. It's coming. It's time. Let's go. He's like that for worship. He gets up before it's time. Because he's not waiting for it, for a calendar alert. It's interior, and it's it's burning inside him so deeply, so passionately that he's up before the sun is up. He's waking up, the rooster. Awake, O harp and lyre, and let's together wake up the earth. Let's wake up the sun. Let's bring in this new day. I will give thanks to you, O Lord not just in private and not just in the assembly but among the peoples i will sing praises to you among the nations it is really impossible i think for someone's heart to be steadfastly committed to praising god and then shutting it down as soon as we leave these doors i mean we live out there we live among the peoples and if our heart is really steadfastly committed we have this constant this core of thankfulness and praise toward God where it's brimming and we wake up with it. We can't really shut that down when we leave. Just like you don't shut down the things you're excited about. Did you see the game? Have you seen his stats? I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples, not just in Israel, among the peoples, not just in the assembly, I will sing praises to you among the nations, not just here, out there, everywhere. I want everyone to hear it. Everyone is going to hear it, because wherever I am and whoever is listening, my heart is steadfastly committed to this praise and this thankfulness. Some of you are like, man, my heart just doesn't brim like that. Where do you get that? Verse 4. My heart is steadfast in praising because God's love is steadfast toward me. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches the clouds. And we touched on this last time, and we do periodically. The extent to which you appreciate God's love will determine the extent to which you praise him. I mean, your zeal level will go up or down depending on how you view what God has done for you so that's why some of us have been sold a, a bill of goods coming into Christianity because we were told, we were given some testimony. Uh, I was sick. I came to Jesus. I got healed. Come to Jesus. See, that's, that's cheap. Does everyone get healed? Will you always get healed? Did you ever get sick again after the healing? Well, yeah. Well, then what did it really do, you, do for you? I was kind of depressed. I came to Jesus, and now I'm not so depressed anymore. Well, that's great, and I hope we all would share it that testimony is that really the height of god's steadfast love is helping your mood your steadfast love is great above the heavens it is it is so great we can't reach it your faithfulness reaches to the clouds think of the time where he's writing this and it's it's hard to think of being up there But well, now it's not so hard We got the millionaires just going to space like, huh, that was cool. Like, what year are we in, right? But he's looking up and he's looking to places where he can't reach, where he can't see, where he can't go in. God's steadfast love is above that. You cannot finish counting it. You cannot finish appreciating it. And therefore, you cannot finish giving thanks for it. And the more overwhelmed you are by God's love for you, the more firm and steadfast your heart will be in singing and making melody to him. But this psalm is not unaware that there are problems and there are tragedies and there are sorrows and there are difficulties and there's violence. Look at verse 5 and 6. The the psalm kind of takes a jolting turn, doesn't it? Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Why? That your beloved ones may be delivered. There's the same theme that we saw from the previous psalm. Delivered from what? Something that is threatening death. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. Whoa, dude, what, what happened to the melody, man? He's like, well, right now, that's my melody. I need help, I need rescue. And so sometimes we come in here and some of our songs are kind of bloody and there's sorrow and there's turmoil. Songs that we sing should be multi-layered in what they're addressing because the psalms are. And the psalmist isn't just like, oh, I'm clicking my heels and everything. He's not just unaware that there's pain. He's in pain. And that doesn't erase verses 1 through 5. 5 but it feels like a turn to us because it's hard for us to imagine living a life like 1 through 5, but at the same time struggling with verse 6. It feels like either or in our minds. If you're stuck in verse 6, how in the world would you ever live a life that looks like 1 through 5? But if you're living a life like 1 through 5, you probably don't have anything going on like verse 6. And for the psalmist, he's like, no. In verse 6, in the lack of deliverance, in my plea for God to save me, in my plea for him to rescue me, I'm not telling God, once you rescue me, then maybe I'll make melody. His heart is steadfastly making melody now, even though he's stuck in the pain. Now that's a steadfast heart. And if you think about it, what good is an anchor if you can never prove its job? If there are no waves, there are no billows, there are no winds, you don't need an anchor. As soon as you stop rowing, the boat just stays still, right? It's because of currents. It's because of weather that you need an anchor. And the weather will test whether anchor the anchor actually holds. And so the proof of 1 through 5 isn't all his talk. The proof of 1 through 5 is him doing that during the turmoil of verse 6. So you need verse 6. The world needs to see verse 6. Otherwise, they won't believe verses 1 through 5. You exalt God great he gives you everything no it's you exalt god even though we're giving you a hard time so one through five is there first and then verse six is the petition the prayer request the beloved ones the ones that are covenant members they're in danger he wants them to be delivered he wants them to have salvation verse six right by your right hand answer me Answer me. I talked briefly last time about how Psalm 107, beginning this fifth book, fifth and final book of the Psalms, the Psalms are broken up into five books, and many scholars believe that the background to the opening of book five is the Babylonian exile, 587 B.C., where Babylon sacked Jerusalem, wrecked the temple, and kicked most of the Israelites out into exile. And we're like, oh, uh-huh, yeah, right, they sacked the temple. Yeah, it's like reading the Trojan Wars, reading, you know, we're just reading history. But uh, as you think about the 20th anniversary of 9 11, you remember where you were. You remember what you saw on the television. You remember the devastation and the pain. And that was a World Trade Center. This is the temple. God didn't dwell in the World Trade Center. Nobody was like, but I thought the World Trade Center was proof that God was in the world and doing things. The the temple was that. And that's the kind of heartache that you see coming out of this psalm. Now, here's the difference. The difference is that even in the Old Testament, this was not just an ethnic problem. This wasn't just a national problem, because even in the Old Testament, a non-Israelite can proselytize and become a covenant member, correct? And also in the Old Testament, an ethnic Jew can can defect out of the covenant. Right? So even in the Old Testament, it wasn't strictly about ethnic identity. What was it? Well, from the beginning of time, there's two people in the world. From the sin of Adam and Eve, there's two people in the world. You have Cain's and you have Abel's. From that point forward, you have people who trust in the promise of this coming Seed that will eventually crush the serpent—the promise that was given to Eve—and then Abel is sort of performing his sacrifices in keeping with that promise, and then Cain is out of step with the promise. And then what happens between those two people? Well, the Cain—Cain—lineage uh, attacks the Abel lineage. Those outside of the covenant oppress those inside the covenant, and that's what you see happening throughout Scripture. When we walk through the book of Numbers, that's what we saw. This journey is made harder by those who make it harder for those following Yahweh. And so I want you to think about the fact that this psalmist is writing to people that are in the covenant, and the danger is those outside the covenant Putting pressure on them. Now, think about this for a moment. How often do you read through the book of Psalms and you see a whole psalm about being sick and I want to get better? How often do you read through the Psalms and you come upon, upon a psalm that's like, I lost my job, this really stinks, God, please hear me? Now, I'm not saying those are petty. We encounter various kinds of trials and difficulties in life, but the Psalms are replete with God, I'm being attacked, I'm being oppressed, I'm being killed. All I have to do is join them and just bounce from this covenant. All I have to do is defect, and I can, but I won't because my heart is steadfast to praise you. And it's the praising you that's getting me in trouble. So will you relieve me from the trouble? Because I'm not defecting. I'm not giving up. I'm staying in. My heart is steadfast. But because of that, there's oppression. And that's why it's hard to preach the Psalms. I, I teach preaching in seminary. And when we come across passages about oppression and persecution, mainly the American students, they're like, what do I do with this? I don't, like, how do I apply it? And oftentimes they'll just turn it into COVID. When COVID attacks you, turn. and I'm like, I almost want to stop the sermon in the middle of the lab, like, oh, whoa. I I get it. COVID is really a pain in the neck, man. And and people have died. I get it. That's not not what, what Paul is talking about here. He's writing from jail. He wasn't arrested because he refused a vaccine. He was arrested because he's preaching Christ, and we don't know how to preach that because it's foreign to us. Oppression is kind of a, it's a foreign concept, but it's really not that foreign. If you comb through your life and ask yourself, how often have you been as vocal as verse three? How many people in your life that aren't Christian know that that's your heartbeat? That's what you're about. Your coworkers, your neighbors family members that you see a couple times a year, or more often than that, if they were to describe you in three or four words, would extolling Christ, you know, would that make it in there? Or would it be like, oh, big fantasy leaguer, you know, big hobbies? Or are we defined by this? Okay, if the answer, if we're honest with ourselves is like, maybe not, maybe not, maybe it would be, but maybe not, well, then why, the next question is, why am I not as vocal as verse 3? And probably the answer is, as light as the persecution is now, we might get poked fun of, we might get some Facebook hate. We're not even willing to take that. How can we ever be willing to take bullets? We shouldn't dodge these psalms, and we shouldn't turn these psalms into flus and viruses. We should look at it for what it is. It's about oppression. Those who resent the fact that they're not in the covenant will put pressure on those who are in the covenant. And all you've got to do is bounce out of the covenant, and you can dodge those bullets. You can dodge that oppression. And we need to do that for us to be in solidarity with our brothers and sisters around the world who don't have the privileges that we do. That's the kind of danger he's talking about. That's the kind of deliverance he wants in verse 6. And he doesn't see it yet. But what does he do? He clings to God's promise. Look at verse 7. God has promised in his holiness... With exaltation, so he's, he's basically quoting God. This is what God is saying, basically. God is promising his holiness. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah, my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. And right there is where we start losing it, right? We're like, we're, I, we're, I don't know where he's at. He's globe globetrotting. What's happening here? Who are these places? Where are these places? Why is Moab a wash baseman? And he's throwing a shoe at Edom like, like a chancla? Is he, you know, Latino? What is happening here? So here's a brief sketch. And some of it, I'm glad we were just in the book of Numbers because you, you might recollect some of the names. God has made a promise that he will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth, and these are the places where Jacob first stepped foot, just in the Transjordan, and then right into the land of Israel. So what he's doing is calling the reader: remember how God got us to the land? Do you remember how God promised the land? I know right now we're exiled from the land. I know right now we wish we were back in the land, but just remember, in the beginning, it was a promise. God said He would do it, and even though we've gone, we've not done our part and we've been scattered, and the temple's in ruin. God still speaks from his holiness, and he doesn't need a temple to do it. In fact, the word holiness there can be translated sanctuary. He doesn't need a physical one to do it. He speaks from his holiness, reminding you of the promise that he's going to do it. And you remember Gilead and Manasseh? These are the places where those tribes, Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, were like, we've got a lot of sheep, we don't want the land inside the land, we want the land just over here, and God's like, okay. So he gave them bigger portion than it was originally promised. I could really go off on that, but anyway, I'm going to keep moving. Around. So Gilead and Manasseh, you remember, and then Ephraim is this representation of the northern region, that's why they're the helmet, so when they're attacked from the north, like we talked about last week, uh, they're like the helmet, the protection, and then Judah is the scepter, the center of authority representing the davidic dynasty so he's saying it's it's intact even though you guys are scattered right now i've got this and i know what i'm doing because i don't go back on my promises what about the enemies moab edom goodness edom that's esau's people so our our brothers that attack us all the time philistia from the time of the judges even into the early uh time of the king's These three nations repeatedly nagged and plagued Israel. What about them? God says, well, Moab is going to be my wash uh, wash basin, and I'm going to throw my shoe to Edom, basically using language that would be for servants. So imagine a master coming home, and the servant comes with the wash basement, and the master washes his hands, and then the master takes off his shoes dirty from his road trip. And he chucks them at the servant, and the servant's going to clean those shoes. So these nations that were oppressing you, they're going to be servants. I'm in charge. They serve me. I'm over everything. I know they seem big and bad now, but I'm over it. And over Philistia, I shout in triumph. I don't lose. And so this little portion, yes, it has some geography and some history to it, but we're trying to remember that God has made these promises and even though it seems like the promises have been undone, this will also be the rhythm of your life. You come, you get excited about Jesus, you start, you, there was a time where you praised and extolled and you picked up your instruments and then things kind of took a turn and things are really hard right now. People in your life are making it hard on you, maybe people it, making it hard on you for being a Christian. The louder you get about God, the harder it is in life. And uh, life is already hard. So we're tempted to just dial it back just to try to make things a little easier. And if you do dial it back, you do, you can dial down the oppression, the persecution, the scoffing. Reminding them, though, that even though it feels like I've abandoned you, I haven't abandoned you, and I'm over everything. My promises remain intact. And then he continues with the rest of the psalm. Because God hasn't done it yet. So verse 7, 8, and 9 is what God is saying, I'm over it. And the psalmist is looking around like, okay, it doesn't look like you're over it, though. (laughs) But God is saying, I know, but I am, and I will show it. So it looks to the future. Verse 10, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Eden? To Edom to take them over, basically. Like, when are we going to do this, basically? What you promised in verse 7, 8, 9, making, let's throw our shoe at Edom. Let's go. Who's going to lead? Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? It's a rhetorical question. Who do you think God's going to do it? Verse 11, Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. Sometimes the Psalms really... Touch on that line of, like, not, not blasphemy, <laughs> but where, like, if you talk to your parents that way, you might get it. You might get an actual shoe thrown at you. <laughs> you rejected us, and the reason why we're in this position is because you didn't go with us with our armies. Now, he can't push the pedal real hard there because the reason why that is true is because they already abandoned the temple. They are already mixed with the people around them. They already abandoned worship. It is a very depressing thing to read through 1st and 2nd Kings. Even the good kings are, you know, the author's like, "Well, he didn't do everything right, but way better than the previous guy." It's like, "Well, the previous guy was horrible." So it's not a real high bar. "Haven't you rejected us? You don't go out with our armies." He's not saying it's God's fault. He recognizes the history and why they're in the position they've been in. But at the end of the day, if things are going to turn around, you've got to do it. God, when you pull back, we get crushed. But if you come into this thing, then we, we crush. So, you know, he's making clear, like, I need you to do this. And he asked for it in verse 12. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man i know we can't do it it doesn't matter how many armies we have how many horses we have how many arrows we can count how well trained our soldiers are it doesn't matter we can hatch a plan in the secret dark corners to try to revolt if you're not in it we do it in vain but with you god verse 13 with god we shall do valiantly it is he who will tread down our foes I love that um, this ends with that promise that looks forward and this hope. With God we shall do valiantly, future. It is he who will tread down our foes, future. It's interesting that this psalm is actually taken from two other psalms, Psalm 57 and Psalm 60. There's a section of 57 and a section of 60 piece together but if you go back and read psalm 57 it starts out with all the trouble all the distress all the things surrounding me that are robbing my joy and then it says but i'm going to praise you i'm going to praise you anyway because you do save these exact verses that we read in the first half of this psalm but this psalm reverses it and says i'm going to praise you no matter what but by the way this really sinks can you rescue you know can you pull me out of this Either way, there is a resolve that is not attached to the present relief of suffering. The resolve to worship is attached to the ultimate relief of suffering. That's the problem with preaching the psalm and not getting to Christ. If you don't get to Christ, you're like, okay, God is going to crush the enemies? Yeah, well, when? How? And then you get to the book of Revelation. And some hero comes with a name tattooed on his thigh, and he's king of kings, and he's lord of lords, and he's wielding a sword, and he puts down, it's not even a fight. You go read in Revelation 19, it's not even a battle. He just puts them down. Pow, it's over. And the rider of the white horse, for those in the covenant, he's not scary. He's the hero you've been waiting for the entire movie. How does God put down the enemies? he may not put them down immediately. And it's not against what Scripture tells us to hear of Christians being pulled out of their gatherings and shot husbands' wives together with their kids for not denying Christ. That's what Scripture prepares us for all the way through to the book of Revelation. Our hope is not that we won't experience pain now. Our hope is that even if we experience pain now, we know ultimately who wins. We've read the end of the book. And that's why our heart can be firm and steadfast even if we're stuck in this middle chapter where there's a lot of pain and turmoil. This other chapter is going to come. And it's ushered in by Jesus Christ, who through his death and resurrection has been granted all authority He's the king. So the question for you is, which side are you on? You're either someone who can praise steadfastly, sing and make melody to God, or you can be someone who's kind of disappointed in God because God doesn't always show up on Monday the way you want him to. He doesn't always relieve you of the present thing that is really causing you pain, legitimately causing you pain. And you're like, I prayed, and I asked, and I submitted a prayer request, and it hasn't been relieved yet. And there's this temptation to kind of bail on God when the ultimate thing in our minds is the present thing we're suffering with. But for the psalmist, the ultimate thing is this ultimate battle, this uh, this consummation of God's kingdom in the end. And that's why the psalm ends with this uptick of hope that is still future. He asks for it in verse 12, Grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man. And then verse 13, this future hope with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So, we don't take it upon ourselves to take out the enemy, of those who would make it hard on us. Jesus taught we love our enemy, right? We exchange the blows with love. We don't, we don't give reviling for being reviled. We love instead and it's not because God says vengeance is wrong it's because he says vengeance is mine so our job is not vengeance nor is it to give up and just roll go with the flow don't go with the flow you have to remain against the flow with a steadfast heart of worship and in those times where it's extremely difficult for you to worship the Lord and make melody and sing with gusto We're going to close in a song in just about a minute here to sing with gusto regardless of what you're going through in your life the only way to do that is to recognize the height of god's love and the height of god's love is not healing you from a sickness as much as i hope that for you if you're sick the height of god's love is not making sure you have job security and the height of god's love is not even relieving you of execution or oppression or whatever you might suffer loss, whatever loss you might suffer for Christ's name. The height of God's love, Paul said in Romans 5, he demonstrated his love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's the height of his love. That's the constant. And your heart can be firm and steadfast in that gospel truth. Whatever you face today. All right, let's pray. Father, as the team comes back up and they pick up our modern versions of harps and lyres to lead us in song. We pray that we would make melody with our hearts now to you, uh, Father, with uh, an earnest zeal that arises from this truth that cannot be robbed, cannot be taken from us. Uh, We can be crushed, killed, persecuted, imprisoned. They cannot take this truth from us that you are good, you love and you've proven it on the cross of Jesus Christ. And I pray that our hearts would embrace that, and that that anchor will keep us through any storm, any difficulty, any oppression. And Lord, we do long to see the day where Jesus demonstrates his victory openly uh, in a way that no one in the world can deny that wickedness will be put away And we will finally be ushered into peace with you. Help us to long for that, Lord, even now as we sing together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're able, please stand and let's close in the song together.